0: So, I don't know if you guys are, are, are music fans, but love songs are, you know, part of our culture, part of, uh, part of history, but Americans uh, have... This is, like, interesting. I should have I done a sound check beforehand. I can see. Sorry about that. Uh, love songs. Love songs. Love songs. There we go. We're getting it there now. Love songs. Uh, I don't know when I've heard, I heard, I don't know how old I was when I f- heard my first song about love that spoke to me. H- any of you guys want to take a shot and tell us what was the first love song you heard that spoke to you? What was it? Come on, audience participation. If you're bold enough. Oh, Whitney, there you go. Hands by my side. Okay, okay. She you. What? Beatles. She loves you. Well, that's going back. Now we're getting dated here. Okay. Uh, who else? Okay. Oh, okay. Who else? Uh, come on. Don't be. Sh- All you need is love. Okay. Got a couple two Beatles people here. Who else? Okay, Greg. Okay, Frankie Valley. And pulling out a Deer Hunter reference. There we go. Robert De Niro, Running Down the Street Naked. Yeah. You never saw that movie? That was, uh, yeah. That was the first movie I ever saw a guy running down the street naked. I went, ooh, wonder where this movie's going. Well, uh, that was my pop reference for the day. We won't get any more, more pop culture. But, but love songs tell us about love found love lost, the search for love, the joy of love, the heartache of love, those who we've loved, the value of those we love, the joy of being in love, the love of beauty, the confusion of love. I mean, you know, just run with it. Songs about love touch just like everything. But the songs that, these songs of love touch us when they touch our story of love. And sometimes you can, you can hear a love song And it just so seems to parallel with your life and your story, and maybe a moment in time, you know, relationship that you're in, high school, college, whatever, uh, marriage, friendship, you know, those romantic, longing for love, I wish I had that kind of story with that person. But they touch us when they connect with who we are, where we're at, right? I want to introduce to you uh, a song, maybe you've never thought of it this way, but in in the Gospel of Luke, uh, the, the first teenage hit song in the Bible, believe it or not, is in Luke chapter 1. And it was written by Mary, who is Jesus' mother. When she was a teenager, When after an angelic encounter and her, her, one of her relatives told, confirmed this encounter, the Holy Spirit touched her and she wrote this beautiful song. It it's really is the kind of love song that, that we sing today. But it's a love song about a kind of love that she experienced that just transformed her life. And if you have a Bible with you, if you'd open it to Luke chapter 1. Now, in, in these paperback Bibles that are in the seats in front of you, it's on page 710. So you can uh, find it easy. Let's, let's uh, read it. And I want to call this talk a song for all the nobodies. That's my title for this, for Mary's song. Other people have titled it other things. It just struck me that way. So Mary starts in verse 46. Luke 1, 46. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with the good things, but he sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be faithful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then returned home. Now there, uh, I think there's a lot you can take from this, but there's there's sort of three movements to this song that Mary wrote, and then she sang. Uh, the three movements are: she sings that God has been merciful to a nobody like me, and I'll, I'll explain it to you in just a second you get a little let that ring out still? Sorry. Uh, then she says, God's mercy makes nobodies like me into somebody. And then third, she says, God's mercy refused makes somebodies into nobodies. So she says, God's merciful to nobodies like me. So she, the, the first part of the song is real autobiographical. In fact, you know, there's, there's sort of a, when you, you can read in the Bible of a familiar, you might hear it in this passage, but like if you go to Psalm 40, David uh, writes, uh, he's in a really difficult place and he says, I cried to the Lord, I cried out to God and he heard me and he delivered me and he lifted my feet up out of the quicksand and he set me on a rock and he put a new song in my heart. And many will hear this song and be glad and believe. And so whenever we have an experience with God, if anybody has a real experience with God, it's, it's, it's almost never something that they can keep in. It's always something that they have to tell other people about. And, and this is the wild thing about a real experience with God, which is what Mary is describing is. When you have a real experience with God, it, it has, like the last week and a half, I had walking pneumonia. And uh, apparently, I was like really contagious. I, had, I, I was told by my doctor, wash your hands like 50 times a day. Uh, don't cough on your hands, cough on your arm. And I went, cough on my arm? And, and he goes... I think I've never done that before in my life He goes well that's what you should be doing You shouldn't be coughing into your hands Because everything you touch You're passing on the black plague that you're suffering from So I was washing my hands My hands were like raw from washing them Right I was trying to be conscientious Uh, God when he breaks into your life It's like that You become contagious And when you tell your story It has this power to awaken other people And offer them a taste of what you've experienced. And so you see in Mary's story, this is is how you can tell a real God moment. There's a real God moment in your life. It doesn't have to be the most dramatic thing compared to everybody else's God moment. But when God speaks to us and touches us and works in our lives, you don't want to keep it to yourself. There's something about it that you want to pass on. The thing is, God inspires that in us because what we tell... However peculiar a God moment is to us, when we tell the people about it, it awakens something in them to, awakens a hunger, sometimes it's dormant in their life. It awakens them to want something of what they experienced, what what they heard about. And so Mary sings this song because this is what happens. When the Spirit of God engages people, he, you know, there's one verse in the Bible that says God hides himself. But the story of the Bible is it's about God revealing himself because the God that's described in Scripture is so amazing. He can't be hidden. He, he must be known. He's so good. And so everything around us, the Bible says, is revealing what God's like if we'll look. But there's something really powerful about people who are made in his image who encounter him, who talk about what happened to them. It has this power to impact other people and and stir up and awaken a hunger for more than what they have in their life. Because that's the thing about, that's the cool thing about God is uh, it's not like, like the old, the old serial uh, shows that I was raised with when I was a kid, there were these adventure shows and they would have an episode, and and, at the, and it would be an exciting episode. Then there would be a cliffhanger at the end of the episode to hook you to watch the next one, and then they would resolve that cliffhanger. And then they leave you another one. But but it, at some point it was over, right? The season was over. They would the storyline would end. But when you follow Christ, the storyline never ends. It just you just keep drawn being drawn into something better something richer, because you can't exhaust God. You can't exhaust him and his love. You can't exhaust his mercy. You can't exhaust his power. You can't exhaust his wisdom. You can't exhaust his presence. And so Mary starts there. She says, God is merciful to nobody's like me. And look at what it starts with. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He's been mindful of me. And she uses all these God words in here. God, the Lord, Savior, the Mighty One, the Holy One, the Faithful One, the Merciful One. It's like when you connect with God, you start encountering the, the, the infinite facets of God's person and how they can touch our lives in ways that just take your breath away, that just deeply change you. And this... Mary, at this point, is, most scholars say she's somewhere between 11 and 14 or 15 years old. She's, this is marrying age in that culture. And, of course, in, in some ways, they were probably a little more experienced in life because they had to face things and hardships and challenges and do things that they saw. Death, they saw all kinds of things that a lot of kids who are 11 years old don't see today unless they see it you know, on TV and some gross, corrupt film or show. But they saw it in real life up close. And they were pretty seasoned in, in certain respects by the time they were 12, 13 years old. And Mary has this encounter with God as a young teenager. She writes this, and Luke, that, that song was so powerful, people sang it in the first century, in the early church, and they've sung it ever since. I grew up as a young Christian singing this as a chorus. Uh, someone in the Jesus People Movement took this passage and wrote a song to it. And we sang it for years. And people have written that song in their time and their generation many times between now and the first century. And probably many times after this, people will come up with tunes because it's such a powerful passage. And Mary self-identifies as a nobody, humble, she uses the word humble. And to us, humble, you know, it has a certain meaning, but in the Bible, humble Means something really different. That word means a poor person, someone who is empty, someone who who doesn't have what everyone thinks it takes. And there's a contrast in this story between, and I'm going to use it. I'm to, it's not humble and proud. I'm going to use these two terms because I think you guys can get it between nobodies and somebodies. And she says because of her, poor, she's from a poor family. She's from the wrong side of the tracks. She's part of a people who have been conquered and subjugated by the Roman Empire. I mean, she is not positioned for success. She's not the kind of person who's going to get accepted into an Ivy League school. She doesn't have the name. She doesn't have the place. She doesn't have any of that stuff. And throughout history, everybody loves a winner. Nobody loves the nobodies. Nobody wants the nobodies on on magazine covers. The nobodies who aren't special, who don't stand out, but there's a lot of nobodies. And even though from the earliest times of human civilization, we've all loved winners and we want to hear about winners, the Bible says that God is mindful, and that's a technical term in the Bible, of losers, of the nobodies. And Mary was a nobody. And her life was getting really complicated because she's pregnant on top of that, which pushes her further into the nobody zone. Because when you're pregnant and you're not married in that culture, one of the social expectations was that you had done something which shamed God and your people and your family and you could be stoned. They didn't always do that, but you could be executed for that. People go, wow, that sounds so barbaric. Well, they they had a view of things that maybe we don't share. There, there might be some merit in the idea that children should should be born into a family that has, a, you know, an intact family. We know now that, you know, I've said it dozens of times here, all statistics tell us that the 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 surest road to poverty is to be born into a family like Mary or you're a teenager and you're an unwed teenager. Surest road to poverty. And so Mary was she was cemented into this nobody zone. And yet she experienced God coming to her and being mindful to her despite the fact that she was in this bad place and that she was regarded poorly. The world likes winners. They didn't like people like Mary. And we tend to project that onto God and think, yeah, that's the way God thinks. Because here's the the thing about the winner mentality is that philosophy eventually makes everybody a loser. Because nobody can live up to it. Because there's always someone who's a little smarter than you. You may be the smartest kid in your school. I remember I did decent in high school. I never studied. I didn't do, but, but I, I was I was smart enough that I could I could get through most tests without a lot of studying. When I went to college, everybody I met was smarter than me. It was very humbling. And I went to, a, you know, not a, a demanding college. Whatever you're proud of, if you take pride in something about yourself, you're going and and you think that is what gets you ahead in life. You're going to run into someone who's better and superior to you in that. And it, the, the winner mentality eventually turns everybody into a loser. That's why it's such a destructive philosophy. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we can't try to excel. It just means we can't place our value and identity as a person in anything that we can lose, anything that's at risk. And you being the best at something is perpetually at risk. You're the best looking you know, you're you you you're, you're connected, whatever, that you're going to run into someone in, in some place who's way beyond you. And then it's going to shake your world. It's going to rock your world. Well, Mary had already just accepted, like people, a lot of the nobodies do, is this is where I'm stuck in life. You know, I'm not going to get the, th- the things in life that all these other people get. And then she encountered, God noticed her. She said, he was mindful of me. And that word had to do with this... This part of God's love that he introduced to the Jewish people, it was a Hebrew word called *hesed*, and it it means God's faithful love. That when God makes a promise to to a person or to a people, he always keeps it. And *hesed* means that when God's made a promise to us and we're in a a position that we need that promise to be fulfilled, we can say, God, remember me. Be mindful of me. But sometimes even before we're saying that to God, he's already mindful of us. And he is reaching out to us. And he reached out to Mary, who was a descendant of Abraham. God had made a promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to be there for your people if they want me. And that's an example that I want to be there for everybody who wants me. That that this rich relationship I've entered into, this little people called Israel, it's just an example of what I want for everybody in the world, every tribe in the world, not just the Jews. I want to I, I be real to the Icelandic peoples. I want to be real to the Argentinian peoples. I want to be real to the, the people in Ghana and the, and the tribal people in northern Canada and everybody in between. And he started with the Jewish people, and he said, they're an example. And so Mary experienced this. And, and what she says next is God's mercy makes nobodies like me into somebody's. So and what does she say? All generations are going to count me and call me blessed. And she, and she says, the mighty one has done great things for me. He has lifted up the humble, her. He has filled the hungry with good things. And it wasn't what she had done. You have to understand. She was blessed not because of what she had done. She was blessed. And I didn't read the, the, the passage right before this, but she went to see one of her relatives who was way, way older, who had conceived in her old age, her relative Elizabeth. She goes to see Elizabeth. She, op- she knocks on the door, opens the door, and says, Hey, Elizabeth, it's Mary. And it says as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, John the Baptist, who was in, Mary, uh, who was in Elizabeth's womb, was filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb, and he, like, does a backflip. And I don't know if you've ever been pregnant. Uh, some of us here know what it's like. I'm not one of them. <laughs> but when that baby starts moving around, I remember laying in bed, and, and I'm falling asleep, and all of a sudden Kathy goes, Whoa! And I go, you know, first baby. I'm thinking, Oh, something terrible. And I go, What's going on? What's going on? And she goes, Look, look. And she goes like this, and you can see, like, this little... Like Stephen was kicking. She's going, ah, oh, ah. Oh. And you see these little feet going like this. And I'm thinking, he's running. I don't know, what is he doing? You know? Is that a, you want to get to the hospital? She goes, no, 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 he's just moving around, just moving around. And, but what happened to Elizabeth was like, like that in space. Boom. And Elizabeth gets filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, she, and then not even knowing why Mary is there, she says, who am I that the mother of my Lord would come to see me? And then she you know, goes into this whole deal about how, what happened to Mary and the angel. And it's like God spoke to her and she spoke at the. This whole thing is like this supernatural deal going on. This is the story of the birth of Jesus. And so Mary's in on all this. But what changed her, according to Elizabeth, what sealed the deal was the angel came and said, Mary, you're favored by God. He wants you to be the mother of the Savior, of Emmanuel, of, of the Messiah. And she goes, how is that going to happen? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a virgin. You know, I'm, I'm betrothed to Joseph. And he goes, the, whole, the angel says, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you. Because Joseph is not going to be his father. Must, this, God is going to be his father. And Mary goes, be it done to me according to your word. And somewhere between that moment, now she just believed God's word and God's promise. She didn't do anything, you understand? She said, let him come into my life. And between that moment, when she walked into her relative Elizabeth's home, Jesus was placed in her by the work of the Holy Spirit. And she became the, the first, in a sense, of of all the people to welcome the Messiah into their lives. She was a pattern, a type of that. And so we talk about being born again. We do what Mary did. She experienced the presence of how, you know, it's like, how much was Jesus God? When? When did he know? Well, he was God enough that when he was in Mary's womb, when he walked into the room in Mary, the Holy Spirit started falling on people. That's a unique person. That shows you, when we believe in Jesus, God invades our life, and he begins to invade the lives of people around us. Mary was just a teenage girl. She, didn't have, she wasn't a somebody. She was a nobody. But her, her maybe aunt, Elizabeth, said, Blessed are you because you believed what God said. And that's the thing. If we believe God's promise, that's where the blessing comes. It doesn't come with what we do or what we don't do. It comes with believing what he says. It's true that with his word will come the power to realize what's in the promise. And so she received God's mercy when she opened her life to welcome Christ into her life. Now, it was a physical thing. Then sh- the third point is oh, so God's merciful to nobodies like her. That's the autobiographical part. Then she starts talking about how God's merciful to anybody. And then she says he wants to be merciful to everybody. And the last movement in her song is God's mercy refused makes somebodies into nobodies. Here's the thing. Back then and now, Deep inside of us, even Christians, we want to be somebody. Now that desire isn't all wrong. It's the way we go about it. It's crucial. She says in her song that God scatters those who are proud in their hearts. He brings down rulers from their thrones. He sends the rich away empty. In other words, when this new way of living comes through this new person, the Messiah, he's going to reverse everything. The last are going to be first, and the first are going to be last. And what Mary experienced was, I'm a nobody, but when I received him, I became a somebody, and everybody knew it. In fact, throughout history, everybody is going to acknowledge, I'm blessed. I'm a somebody because of him, not because of what I do. But just being related to him makes a nobody a somebody. And no one can take that status away from them. But if you try to be a somebody based on what you do, you will eventually lose that. And probably you'll lose it well before you're ready to lose it. But the cool thing is, is if you can think of it this way, when, when the balloon of your somebody gets punctured, God is in that. That's a moment where you can decide, I've wanted to be a somebody and I've tried to achieve somebodiness in a hundred ways. And now my balloon is punctured. My hope is devastated. And now I'm moving towards the nobody zone. And that's devastating because of the way everyone's going to treat me, the way I'm going to view myself. And that's when Mary and other people come in and they go, no. That's exactly where you want to be, because the somebodies, the people who live that philosophy, they will lose everything eventually. It will be shown as empty. They won't be what they're pretending to be. You know, this is the hard thing about being a somebody is. I've tried to be a somebody. You've tried to be a somebody. We all have tried to be somebodies. And the hardest reality to face is we are posers. We are posers. I've told this story, it's been a few years since i told this story, but I remember the first time I realized I was a poser in my life. There was a kid, I grew up in Houston, Texas. There was a kid down the street in our neighborhood. We were all baby boomers. All of our, our parents came back from World War II. They got married and they started having kids. And I mean, my neighborhood, there wasn't, I was the only, no, me and my neighbor were the only family, one child family. There were so many five, six, seven, eight kid families in that neighborhood in three and four bedroom homes, people had seven or eight kids in those homes. Okay, and and if you let me just put it this way: if you like baseball, you could find a baseball game any time of the day. There were so many kids around who you, know, you want to play football, basketball, baseball. You want to you know play war, you name it. There was always kids around, but there was one kid down the street who had a pool. He had a pool in his backyard. Right, when you live in Houston, Texas, and you can fry eggs on the sidewalk, you know, about eight months a year, having a pool is a luxury. And the thing about a person with a pool is they're everybody's friend, right? Well, the Pruitts, that was his family, the, 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 Richard and I were really good friends. But there were times where Richard Poole, Richard's pool was the most attractive part of our friendship, all right? Do you understand? I mean, I didn't like Richard that much. And that was inside me. I never knew it was inside me. But one day, I'm over at Richard's house, and there's a group of us. And we're all kind of hanging around uh, Richard's house, (laughs) hoping that we get invited to go in the pool. Just so happens, underneath my my cutoff blue jeans, I had my swimsuit on just in case, you know, but I didn't want anybody to know that we're at Richard's house, and, and Richard's family was kind of family full of drama, and, and his mom would, would come in and kind of just go off. Well, she comes in one day, and uh, we're all hanging around at Richard's house, and she comes in, and she's just in one of those moods. She goes, Richard, you got to clean this house up, you know. You're, don't you even think about swimming until you clean this house up, you know, and he's got I think we had a couple older sisters and a younger sister. He was the only boy. And you know, the, the girls were the ones that had to do the house cleaning stuff, but none of them were around, so her his mom threw it on him. And so <laughs> there's four or five of us there. Four of the guys that go, oh, look what time it is. You know, I I gotta go home. I got st- My mom, I hear my mom calling me. <laughs> Everybody's left there but me. And I'm thinking, I gotta think of an excuse. I don't wanna help. I, you know, I know what this means. I gotta help clean up with Richard. But I'm embarrassed. I'm not as fast on my feet as all my friends. they have all gone. I'm standing there. It's like the Three Stooges Theater. You know, they're, all the guys are in line. Who wants to volunteer for the, the suicide mission? And everybody steps back. And there's one guy standing there. And they all step back. Oh, and he goes, great. Thanks for volunteering. That was me at that moment. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm just nervous. I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh. I feel foolish. So I start helping Richard clean up, you know. And, uh, and I it, I mean, his house was such a mess, I'm not sure we could have cleaned it up and, and, and got to swim at 10 o'clock at night. But we're doing it, and at a certain point, Richard, you know, we're cleaning up. We're going to the garage, and then we're mowing. I mean, it was like a big deal. Richard turns to me, and he goes, you know what, John? He goes, when all those guys left, I, I realized how many people just like me because I have a pool. And he said, I'm so glad I have a friend like you who just likes me for who I am. And I was standing there when he said that, and I just went, and I didn't know this word, but this is what went on in my mind. You're a poser. You really don't like Richard that much. And I should have said at that moment, Richard, I should have told him, Richard, I'm just like them. I'm just, I just couldn't think of an excuse, right? I should have said that. But I wanted to be a somebody. And somebody's pose because deep inside, we are not what we're trying to be. Because we're trying to be it. We're trying. It's just not who we are. She says in here, all those people who are like that are going to get exposed one day. Because they're refusing God's mercy and his grace. But the humble people, and this is the weird thing. All the way through the Bible, it says this. It's, it, it, and, you know, in our world, we're fighting over territory, right? Right? There's a tragic war going over, going on around Syria. And there's a city that's been in the news called Aleppo. And people are just killing thousands of people mercilessly so they can get this piece of property. But you know what the Bible says? It's the meek who are eventually going to inherit the earth. All the people that are stuck in that city who have no power and are being killed by the somebody's, Who have the power, one day, all the people who've grabbed things and posed and been somebodies are gonna lose it all. The thing is, not very many of the people who are somebodies realize how great their need is, how much they need God's mercy because they're living by this I can do it mentality. I wanna be a winner, I wanna be somebody, I don't ever wanna be called a nobody. Mary realized and this is what we have to realize about this whole Christmas story is Mary knew she was one of the humble, the poor of the earth the idea that God the great one would come and be born into her and then come and be born into a family like that and enter the world gripped her to such a degree that it caused her to just break out in song. And say, this is the way it works. This is the good news. That when you're empty he, and, and hungry, he will fill you with good things. That he regards you. He's mindful of you. That's not the way the world works. That's not the way the world thinks. But it's, that's the way God works. So, in Luke 18, I want to read this passage to you. So, how do you recognize... If you are a somebody, if you haven't already, how do you recognize if you are a somebody or you're you're becoming a somebody again? Because when you become a nobody, God makes you into a somebody. But it's a different kind of somebody. But all the somebodies have to become nobodies before they can really become somebody. So here's here's a parable Jesus taught. He said, to those who were confident in their own righteousness, they, they were somebodies, and they looked down on everybody else, especially people from other political parties. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a real upright religious leader. And the other one, a notorious tax collector. Remember we did this a few weeks ago. When, when I say, Pharisee, you're supposed to say, boo, hiss, Right? And then when you say tax collector, yay. Well, that would not be the way it goes back then. The tax collectors were the villains. The Pharisees were the good guys. But Jesus flipped that understanding here. And he says, the Pharisee went to the temple and prayed about himself. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. You see the posing in that? Or even like this tax collector took a step away. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, the moral of this story is, I tell you the truth. This man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the religious man, went away forgiven and justified by God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. If you say I'm somebody, God will humble you and prove you really are a nobody, that you're a poser. But whoever humbles himself and embraces being a nobody will be exalted by God, just like Mary. Mary. And so here's three ways you can tell if, you're, if you are or are becoming a somebody. Somebodies are generally not grateful people. They're not grateful people. I don't mean that everybody has moments of gratitude. But a person who's grateful is a person who understands the gift that they're constantly given in their life. And it's coming from different directions all the time. Their life is a gift. And they're grateful for it. They're grateful for other people. They're grateful for the server that's thoughtful. They're grateful for a sunny day. They're grateful for their job. The person who's the poser is always frustrated that things are not the way they want them to be. And they're critical about everybody. They're critical about the weather all the time. It's, that's what somebodies are because they're into it's got to be my way anything that frustrates my will and my way, I'm, I'm not happy about it. Secondly, somebodies are generally judgmental of other people. Did you see that in the parable? He's looking at the, the, the Pharisee, he's looking at the other person, the tax collector, and he's saying, I just thank you, I'm not like that guy. I, I see all the flaws in other people. It's like they have moral x-ray vision. And they can see all the flaws in other people. And that's where their focus goes first. But Jesus says, someone who's a nobody, their focus goes towards their own stuff first. Which is what nobodies are aware of. They're aware of their faults and their flaws and their shortcomings. And they're not avoiding looking at them. And they're not trying to get everyone else to avoid looking at them by pointing out everybody else's faults and flaws. They're willing to be seen for who they are, but some bodies are not like that. Are you like that? Are you a person who's constantly now? I, mean, I mean, this is, again. We're kind of past the election now, but if you're still stuck in the political finger-pointing game, I, I honestly ask you to ask yourself: Do you think that? Flawed people are, only, are, are all pooled in that other political party that so troubles you. They're both, all of us, we're messed up. And I know there's degrees of, of being right about certain issues and certain points in time and, and certain circumstances. There's no doubt that there's moral rights and wrongs. But that's not how this plays out. When we look at other people in another political position of some kind and we're just constantly aggravated about that, that we have to have enough of a sense of self-worth to go, whoa, am I spending as much time dealing with my own stuff as I am thinking about them? There's, maybe there's something inside me, there's a, there's a dodge going on, a game my own heart is playing to keep me focusing on what's wrong with everybody else. Well, if that's true, you're into this somebody thing. And it's self-righteousness. Last thing. Somebodies can be very religious, but it's second-hand religion. And there's not joy in it. And there's not transformation in it. When you've moved in, when you're moving towards the somebody zone, there's no joy there. There is no joy there. You know what joy is? It's when when a kid comes up to a Christmas tree and he opens a gift that he doesn't have any idea what's in that gift. And Opens a, the joy of receiving a gift is the purest joy that there is. And the religious person is not about the gift that God's given me, all the gifts of Jesus and all these other gifts. They are about what I'm doing. They're praying about themselves and, and they're not changing. When you're in the somebody zone, you don't change because it's not about receiving love. Here's the cool thing about grace is if you want to receive grace, you will be the beneficiary of love that will take your breath away. If you'll open your heart up to it and it will, it will, it will start working on your, and this is a theological term, your orneriness. <laughs> love will start changing you. But here's the thing. Love is something that's freely given to you. It's free. God, the people who wrote scripture, what they were writing was, what they were experiencing. And one of the phrases that they coined, which no other religion in the world actually even contemplated up till first century Palestinian Christianity, is God is love. God is love. They experienced it. And then they wrote about it. They said this God. That we worship through Jesus. Loves us. He loves us all the time. He is love. We've, we've gone around him. Like the blind man around the elephant. And all the way around him. Everything we touch of him. Is love. And they just Wrote about it. They couldn't not write about it. But love is a gift. And secondhand religion, there's no love in it. It's about what you do. It's about, I gotta go to church, gotta read my Bible, gotta pay my 10%, you know, gotta do this, gotta do that. That's that's the doing. It starts with the done of what Jesus has done. When we open our heart, when we say, I need that. That's a a point of humility where you contact love. And the thing about... I didn't put this in my notes, but one of the ways that you can know that you're moving into the somebody zone is you're always the one that's giving. You're always in the position of power. You're always in the position of taking care of other people. Now, sometimes circumstances force us into, into caregiving roles. But I mean... You're always at the person, you're always in the position of being the one that's giving. When you're doing that, you're not being vulnerable. You're not recognizing it's about what God does for me. You're, you're into this mode, it's, God, it's what I do. And when you do that, it's about, it starts changing you. And then you start looking at other people who aren't being like you, and you get resentful and judgmental. But when you move back over to this place of love where you say, God, I need to taste your love, and I'm going I'm to fry your phone lines until I experience your love, you won't change. Because there's something about this posing somebody zone that makes you feel good in a weird, destructive way. And we've got to be people who remind each other about that. I try to remind you about it on a regular basis and say, Gosh, when you find yourself there, run over to the place of dependency and humility and say, Lord, I'm a nobody. Help me, meet me. So God always shows mercy to nobodies. Do you understand that? There's different ones of you here at this point in your life. There's something going on in your life right now. And because that's going on and you're failing in that way and you're a nobody in that aspect of your life, you feel like, You have to do something to get it together before you can move towards God or God will move towards you. And the truth is, that's not true. He is right there in the middle of the mess that you've made. If you will just say or not say, if you will just breathe, his grace will invade you. Remember how we talked about the word in the Old Testament for spirit, God's Presence that you feel that, that invades your life. The word in the Old Testament and the New Testament just so happens to be the word human beings use for air and breathing. That That's how close God is to us at all times. No matter how far I run away from where I think he is, the moment I stop and take a breath, he's right there. I didn't leave him Geographically, at some place. And so, nobodies get that. They are what the Bible calls the humble. The humble are those who know and are willing to let God and others know that they are the architects of their own misery, but they're also willing to trust Christ to become the author and finisher of their salvation. So, if you're in the somebody's zone, you don't want anybody to know that you're a poser. You don't want anybody to know. Some part of your, your whole life might not be wrecked at this moment, but there, everybody sitting in this room, you got an under construction part of your life right now. You all have orange barrels somewhere, and that's where God wants to meet you. But you have to embrace the fact that I'm a nobody there, I got nothing to be proud of there. I got to stop using that kind of thinking, I have to reject it and accept that God shows mercy. To the nobodies, the people who are messed up. You can be messed up in every area of your life. That's who he wants to show mercy to, someone like you. And somebodies are what the Bible calls the proud, who are full and don't need God or his mercy, or they don't think they do. So we're going to do communion. And what churches call the Lord's table Started in the night that Jesus was betrayed. And he took bread and wine and, and, and he took a Jewish ceremony called the Passover and he reinterpreted it. And I won't explain all that, but what he did was he took bread and wine and said, from now on, these, they understood meals as places where you started a relationship or you deepened a relationship. And the Jewish people would not invite people into their homes that they considered bad people, because they didn't want to associate with people who were bad people, because they thought their badness will rub off on me. Jesus was constantly challenging that idea, because he said, that the, and it's not, that, it's not that there isn't some truth in the fact that if you hang around with people, they're going to, whoever you associate with is going to influence you, but they had this idea that it would affect my relationship with God if I hang around with those people. Jesus took this meal. He instituted the Lord's Supper. And, and churches call it the Lord's table or the table of the Lord. And what we do is we say, and not always in these words, we say there's only two kinds of people who are welcome at this table. The nobodies who know they need mercy, who when they experience God's mercy will become somebodies in God's eyes. And the people who are somebodies who are tired of being posers and they want to become nobodies, and they're willing to become nobodies even if God never makes them into a somebody. But the truth is, all the somebodies are supposed to be somebody, but they have to become a nobody first. You have to let go. You have to let go and let God. And so the Lord's table proclaims the gospel. That's what that Paul said in First Corinthians, he said. Jesus gave them this little formula, and he said, take this bread, it's my body, it was broken for you. And take this cup, it's the wine of a new covenant that I'm making in my body. In other words, I'm doing everything that needs to be done for your lives to be full, for you to have a relationship with God, and for your lives to be full to the overflowing. And that you can meet me all over the place, but you can meet me particularly at this table And it can be this place of reminder for you can know what God has for you and where everybody's at the same place. Now, there's people who are posers who come to the table. And God warns, Paul warned them. He said, if you come to the table and you're being a poser, mercy will be unleashed on you. And sometimes that mercy is tough. It will begin to shake your life. And consequences will be loosed in your life because you're, you're coming to this place of mercy which is beautiful and holy and you're treating it like it's going to the candy store. And it won't always go well for you if you come to the table as a poser. And so Christians have tried to figure out, well, what do we do? Do we have rules about this? And I just go, no. A lot of us have just said, we're not supposed to have rules about coming here. We're just supposed to warn people that something wonderful When you call on the name of Jesus, something wonderful will happen. But don't call on his name in vain. Don't come to the table as a poser. And if you go, well, that that sounds like you want me to straighten my life out before I come. No, you can't straighten your life out. But what you can do is you can come to the table and admit to yourself and other people that you're a poser. Because in one sense, the only people that come to this table are posers. All of us are. But we're saying, Jesus,